Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 31 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I'm Nick Grisco, fantasylawguy.com, at fantasylawguy on Instagram and Twitter. Today's show, some great fantasy questions answered and Thursday night football recap. Hakeem dropped the ball! Oh, Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? What are talk about? Playoffs? Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. Playoffs? <laughs> I just hope we can win a game. It's my quarterback. What the hell's going on out here? I cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep a trick the ball down the field, boys. I saw, son. I saw. Hello? You play to win the game. Hardly. Sends the Saints to the Super Bowl. Last night, pretty fun game. Browns running game rolling. Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, both look sensational. Joe Burrow and Joe Mixon trending in opposite directions. And I'll discuss whether I'm worried about Joe Mixon's slow start later on in this show. We also have A.J. Green. Tyler Boyd, Baker Mayfield. I'll get to all of them. First, let's take on some listener questions. We have four fantastic fantasy football questions from listeners in today's show. I'm going to get to all of them, and then I'm going to recap the Thursday night football game. First up, this is from Logan in New Orleans, and he asked, who are some buy lows that I should put trade offers out for after week one? And Logan, Deontay Johnson comes to mind. The Steelers played on national TV. So the whole world was watching Juju Smith-Schuster score two touchdowns. And also they were watching Deontay Johnson muff a punt and drop a pass in the first half. He only went to halftime with like five yards. And then he ended up leading the Steelers in air yards and saw a higher target share than Juju Smith-Schuster. His targets led the team, 10 targets in that game, despite the Steelers leading throughout the second half. And that's because the Steelers were intent on finding ways to get Deontay Johnson the ball after a sluggish start. And they love Deontay, the Steelers do. And Pittsburgh was able to run the ball at ease against the Giants with Benny Snell. But I don't think their running game is going to be that good now with the question marks concerning James Conner and some of the offensive line injuries that they had in that game. So there will be days where Pittsburgh needs to throw more. And I think Deontay Johnson, you can put some feelers out for him. I think he's going to have a good season. And some other players that come to mind, some buy lows here. David Montgomery, I thought he was pretty impressive in week one. Tyler Lockett, Jerry Judy, Antonio Gibson, that's a big one right there. Cooper Cup, those are the players that just come to mind when I'm talking about buy lows. And I think all of them are pretty affordable right now because of subpar week one performances. But I think all of them are going to end up having a better than expected season. So see what you can get for Deontay Johnson, David Montgomery, Tyler Lockett, Jerry Judy, Antonio Gibson, and Cooper Cup. There are more, but those are the ones that come to mind first. The second question comes from Jody F. in Patterson. Louisiana. He says, hey, I took Christian Kirk in both of my leagues. Has your opinion changed on him and should I cut him for Corey Davis? P.S. Love your fantasy guide. Use it every year. Thank you, Jody. And I did like Christian Kirk as a post-hype breakout candidate, but I think week one showed us that the transition from DeAndre Hopkins to Arizona was much more seamless than expected. 
definitely more so than I anticipated. And he's going to be a target hog there. And I'm not freaking out about Christian Kirk yet. I know that the five targets on paper is discouraging, but the targets he did receive were all down the field. And Murray kind of overshot him on two of the deep shots that could have been touchdowns with more accurate or perfect throws there. And Kirk is the primary deep threat for what is really a high potent offense that runs a lot of plays, has a good quarterback. So he's going to have some games where he gets behind the defense for a long score. The problem with Kirk is predicting when those games happen. That's the real issue here. He's extremely volatile, very boomer bust every week. And I'm holding him in most cases, like one or two more weeks, because of his role in the offense. Again, a good quarterback. And I'm even starting him in one league despite last week's goose egg because I don't really have any other good options. It's a very deep league. But I also did cut him in one league. And I think that was for Jalen Rager in free agency. And I'm honestly pretty torn on the Corey Davis questions. I'm leaning towards, yes, you should make the switch and drop Christian Kirk for Corey Davis. And I realize that Corey Davis has benefited in week one and Ryan Tanhill threw 40 plus passes against Denver. And he never really does that. But AJ Brown battling a bone bruise in his knee. I think the Jaguars being on deck is more of a reason that the Titans may rest him in that game because it's a very winnable game even without A.J. Brown. So that would make Corey Davis the lead wide receiver and just give him a chance to establish himself as the primary target for the long run against a weak Jacksonville team. Corey Davis, obviously talented enough to go sixth overall in the NFL draft, but he's just had injuries throughout his career, hasn't really put it together. Things could change now that he's healthy with Ryan Tannehill. We didn't really see it much last year, but he was also playing hurt. But Corey Davis in a contract year as well. So if there's any time he's going to put it all together, it should be now. So yeah, I'd probably make the switch. I would cut Christian Kirk to grab Corey Davis. It's a good question though. All right, this next one is from Blaine from Wisconsin. I love the non-local listener there. That's nice. He says, enjoy the pod. Two commish questions, man. What are... Your thoughts on a weekly high score bonus getting a small percentage of the pot each week? And second, somebody in my league lost to another guy because he didn't start a kicker. He didn't draft one. I'm the commissioner, but was at a gender reveal party and missed the early kickoffs for week one. And I had a text like two minutes before the game from the guy who didn't start the kicker saying he couldn't get his ESPN app to open and asked me if I could pick up Carolina's kicker and insert him into his week one lineup. I didn't see the text until after kickoff. He ended up losing by two points and is claiming he should get the win. What do you think my ruling should be? Wow. I mean, these are incredible questions. I love the second one. I really like all commissioner questions, honestly. I like serving as the judge on these kind of things, and I take my commissioner duties very, very seriously. So let me address the weekly high score question first because I think that one is a much simpler answer. I'm not a fan of awarding weekly high scoring bonuses and especially taking up a percentage of the pot. And the reason is because I think that it's not accomplishing anything productive and I think it's really not accomplishing what it is designed to do. And generally, and maybe your league is different, but generally this is implemented, this type of rule is implemented in order to keep people in the league interested all season long, like to prevent inactivity or people quitting after a bad start to their season. And in theory, it works, but in practice, it just doesn't. 
and it's it's not effective because it doesn't help the bad teams. And those are the ones you're trying to prevent from inactivity, and, and those are the ones you're trying to keep making sure they start every player and field an active lineup or a full lineup every week. But the bad teams, these teams are not the ones getting the weekly high scores. They aren't posting high scores for the week. It may happen every once in a while, but it's just very rare. The teams getting the weekly high scores are the best teams because they score the most. And those are the playoff teams, and they're the ones competing for the prize money anyway. So it just kind of seems counterproductive to just take money out of the pot. And that's a pretty substantial, that's a sizable amount that you're taking out the pot. That's 16, or sorry, excuse me, that's like 14 weeks that you're giving money to that's coming out of the pot that's going to weekly high score when it could just go to the best teams that finish first, second, and third each year, like a season's long worth of work. And I don't want to speak for your league. Like it's fine if you do it just to like make each week interesting, but if it's to try to give bad teams a reason to play each week, I think that it is ineffective in that regard. And there are just better ways to accomplish that end. I actually like penalizing last place rather than taking money out the pot and rewarding. I like the stick instead of the carrot here. And, and I make a last place punishment. Or if it's not a steep buy-in, I'll actually make last place and last in points pay double the buy-in. Because nobody likes paying double the buy-in. And that way, there's an incentive if you do last place in points and last place in standings to pay double the buy-in or maybe half the buy-in. That way, there's an incentive not to finish last and an incentive to keep scoring as many points as possible so you're not last in points. And sometimes it could be the same person. And then they're paying triple the buy-in or maybe they're paying the full buy-in again. But I think ultimately, this is a better motivator of keeping bad teams active each week. And I also think it keeps money in the pot. It actually adds money to the pot. So yeah, I'm anti-weekly high scorer. I think the pot should be reserved for the top three finishers, not just weekly performers. And I just think that there's better ways to keep league members active. And if you really have a problem with keeping league members active, then they probably honestly shouldn't be the league. I know that's easier said than done because a lot of these leagues are family leagues or work leagues and stuff like that. And it's hard to, to boot people. But, I mean, if you have a buy-in and it's a competitive money league, then you may want to consider, you know, talking to that person. I've seen a lot of people do like a three-strike policy to where if they have three missed lineups, then they, then maybe they lose a draft pick next year. Or maybe they kicked out the league. It seems harsh, but everyone knows it going into the season, three strikes. And so if they don't do it, then they just don't care enough. And that way, if you establish beforehand, you can have an excuse to kick out somebody in the league who it may be awkward kicking out. But the one thing you don't want to do, which I've seen more often than I should, is you don't want to penalize them by like taking their fab money away. And that's like a common punishment. Like if somebody doesn't set their lineup, I've seen in several leagues that people try to take their fab money away. Like they like they take off $20 out of their $100 budget. But I think that is a very counterintuitive move or counterproductive move because the whole purpose of this is to try to be promoting activity. Like as a commissioner, you want these people to be setting their lineups. So why make it harder for them and give them less free agency money? So I think that's counterproductive. But yeah, establishing like a three strike in your out policy or making last place or last in points pay half the buy-in again or double the buy-in or just having a last place punishment. That's really embarrassing. Those are types of things that you can do that are better than taking money out of the pot and awarding it to just weekly high scores, which 
the worst teams never get awarded anyway. So I'm going to try to take your second question here, and it's a doozy. And for commissioner questions like this, I like to put myself in your shoes, or I like to pretend that this is actually happening to me. Like what, if this exact scenario happened in one of my leagues, what would I do? And if I got a text two minutes before kickoff to change somebody's lineup because they can't for whatever reason, and if I got a text two minutes before kickoff to change somebody's lineup because they can't for whatever reason, maybe they're working on vacation, maybe there's not enough self-service to get internet, maybe they can't log into the app, like you said, maybe they can't get to a computer, whatever it is, if I got that text, generally I'm going to accept the transaction. Like I'm going to allow the roster change and manually do it myself because as a commissioner, like I mentioned, you want to be promoting activity in full lineups. Like that's part of your job is to make sure that everybody or encouraging everybody at least to set their lineup so your league has the best competitive balance and is the most fair and is the most fun for everybody. So if I get a text and it comes in before kickoffs, I like to be flexible with it. And I also feel like I should have the duty to make the change. I don't want to be the commissioner that just says, no, you're screwed. But I do want to address two concerns that you may have here before I actually ask a question of my own. First, you mentioned that you didn't see it until after kickoff. And to me, that doesn't really matter. As long as the text or request comes in prior to kickoff of that player's who's being requested, that player's game, then I'm okay with it. If it comes after kickoff, I would say, okay, hey, sorry, man. You know, it's after kickoff. Can you try to pick somebody up in a later game and, you know, I can push the request through? So the timing of the request here is not really an issue to me because you said he did do it two minutes prior to kickoff. I think that's fine. And second, you also may not like that he specifically didn't name a player. I think there's a reason that you put, quote, Carolina's kicker in quotes in your question to me. Because you may see it as a problem that he didn't mention Joey Sly, the Carolina kicker, by name. And I don't view that as a problem or a reason to not make the change either. I think Carolina's kicker is specific enough to where you know that he wants Joey Sly in there. Joey Sly was probably one of the top kickers available in free agency in most leagues. And even if he doesn't say Joey Sly by name, or even if he doesn't know who Joey Sly is, the intent was clear and I think he's the fact that he specifically requested Carolina's kicker and there's only one option and that's obvious who it is, I think that's fine. It's not like he said, hey, go pick up a kicker for me because then that would be unfair in my opinion and I'd reject or I'd tell him he must choose one because I don't want to be picking up somebody's player, making decisions for another person's team as a commissioner and having that matchup come down to like my decisions. No, that's extremely unfair. So, but I am good with the lack of specificity in this case. I'm good that he just said Carolina's kicker. I think the intent is clear there. However, my question to you is this, and I actually think my ruling comes down to this. Did he tell you to drop a player? Like who did he tell you to drop for his kicker? Because if he didn't say who to drop, It's not your job as a commissioner to make that call for him. And I actually think it's an overstep to pick a player to cut for him. That would be extremely controversial and unethical. So I would then deny the request and say, look, you didn't tell me who to cut, so I can't make the move. You know, it's past kickoff now. Let me know if you want to cut a kicker 
or sorry, let me know if you want to add a kicker in a later game and tell me who to cut and I'll make that move for you if you can't open the app. But let's say that he actually had an extra spot on his roster. Like you didn't have to cut anyone. Like you could just go in there and add Joey Sly for him just like he said. Then it's fair game. I think it's a legal transaction. It gets tricky if... You can make the argument, at least, if somebody was eligible for IR on his team. Let's say he had like Raquel Armstead and he was out for that game. And you could have just moved somebody to IR and not had to drop anyone and make that call. And you were able to add the kicker. That's a tough one for me. But I lean no to that because I do think for a last second change request, and I'm open to them, I just think that they need to clarify and make the move to put somebody to IR. And they need to clarify who they're cutting. But ultimately... Blaine, I think it is part of a commissioner's job to fulfill a request like that as long as it is timely, but they must be specific enough for the entire move to be processed. You can't be making decisions for them. So they need to specify who they want clearly, which I think the Carolina kicker is clear enough, but then they need to tell you who to cut. So if he didn't tell you who to cut and you would have been forced to cut somebody without him giving you anyone, then I actually rule against making this change and keeping the result as is with no kicker. So the guy who wanted the kicker would lose because he didn't clarify who to cut. And you as commissioner would be overstepping your bounds if you made that move for him. If the kicker could have been added without cutting, however, I would say that the kicker's points do need to be added to a score and he would get the win. I think it's a reasonable request and it was timely. He specified enough that it was the kicker, and you could have made the move without making a roster decision for his team. So, yeah, the other manager is going to be pissed. But in that case, I think the request should have been granted. Another question I am thinking of as I explain this is, why didn't the guy who failed to start a kicker just use one for the 315 games, the afternoon games or the night games? Did you tell him that you were going to give the points for Joey Sly or that you were going to process this request? Because if not, that's more of a reason to rule against the change. Because he could have just corrected the issue on his own anyway. But yeah, that's a fun scenario there. My ruling is based on whether he needed to cut somebody or whether he told you who to cut. And if so, I think you do add the Joey Sly points to his total and you do give him the win. And a word of advice to other commissioners who are listening to this. When this kind of stuff happens, because it does happen every year, somebody always needs you to make a change you know, once or twice a year because they can't for whatever reason, it's best to send a message to the entire league and notify them and just say something like, hey, you know, Scott texted me at 11.58 a.m. to put Joey Sly in and cut McCall Hardman or whoever he wanted to cut. And, that, and then here's the screenshot. You know, give them the screenshot of it and just say, you know, I just got this message FYI, I was at my gender reveal party or whatever you're at and say, you know, I'm going to fulfill this request because it was timely before the games and it was a specific request. And I just wanted to put everybody on notice for this, that I'm going to be adding the score up or adding Joey Sly to his roster. However, ESPN lets you do that. And also I would respond to the manager who wants to make the switch. I would say, hey, look, you know, if it's after kickoff, if he's like a few minutes late, I would say, hey, look, you know, it's after kickoff. I can't make this change for this reason. You know, please pick up somebody in a later game or tell me who to cut and I will make the switch. You want to be clear with them early that they can make the switch. They just need to let you know or they need to clarify who they need to drop, etc. You don't want to just screw them over by not responding. And commissioners can be put in tricky situations sometimes. It's such a unique 
position because it's like the only job that I know of or the only duty that I know of where you are making rules and rulings for the league that you're an equal competitor in. So sometimes if the player is playing against you, you would have to be fair and grant them that request, even though, you know, obviously your cold bias soul doesn't want to do that because you don't want to give them the kicker points there. But as long as it was a reasonable quest before the game, you need to treat the situation just as if it was anyone else in the league and be fair and impartial for all decisions, even if it goes against you. So great question there. Uh, and good luck with your ruling. I hope that my answer helps or even satisfies the rest of your league. Okay, last question of the day. This is from Spencer in Houston. If you could redo the first round of fantasy drafts knowing everything you know now, what would it look like? And that that's a pretty cool question right there. And I'm guessing you're trying to evaluate who I like, like going forward or for the rest of the season, maybe for trade value. So I'm not going to include week one totals in my answer. Like there's two ways of kind of approaching saying redo the first round. Like on one hand, you could be asking who I think is going to finish where, who's going to be the most valuable. And that, and in that case, you would be putting Josh Jacobs week one in there and you would be including Devonte Adams, you know, 35 PPR points. You'd be including that within their totals. But I'm going to take the approach, which I think you mean is knowing what you know about week one, and but pretending it also never happened at the same time. Like if you're drafting today for the rest of the year, I guess is a better way to put it. How would you draft? And I would actually keep probably the top six. I'd probably keep the same, but just in a different order. I'd probably go Ezekiel Elliott first. And then I would probably take Clyde Edwards Elaire, the Fresh Prince, second. Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel Air. After saw, seeing what we saw, I'd probably take Christian McCaffrey uh, second or third, and then I'd take Derrick Henry fourth, and then Alvin Kamara probably fifth over Saquon Barkley sixth. I might even take Dalvin Cook over Saquon Barkley. I'm not panicking about Barkley. I'm still taking him 6th or 7th overall, but there will be some games where the Giants offensive line just can't block. I'd probably end up taking Kamara or Barkley 5th. Whoever I didn't take there, I'd take 6th, and then probably Dalvin Cook 7th. Josh Jacobs would be 8th, and then that is 8 straight running backs. I'd probably go Devontae Adams at ninth. I think he was already ninth on my board going into the season, so I'm going to keep him at ninth overall, although I'm even higher on him now, obviously. Uh, tenth overall, I'm going to throw in Jonathan Taylor there. I think Jonathan Taylor's stock has massively increased, probably more than anyone in fantasy football. And I think Taylor should probably be a first-round pick if you're drafting for the rest of the season now that Marlon Mack is out for the year. And because Taylor is playing with such a great offensive line, his quarterback peppers running backs with receiving targets, and Taylor's also just really good at football. So I'm going to say Jonathan Taylor, 10th overall. And then 11th and 12th, I'd probably go uh, DeAndre Hopkins. And uh, I can't decide between Lamar Jackson and Julio Jones, 12th. But that would be my 12th and 13th picks. I'll just cheat a little. I'll probably take Julio Jones over Lamar Jackson because of positional scarcity. Julio, get the stretch. But... Lamar Jackson probably be my 13th overall pick. He is picking up right where he left off. Sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. But yeah, that is that's a great question. It's a creative question. And I hope to hear more questions like that, more questions from anybody. And I appreciate all the questions I got today. And as a reminder, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Fantasy Law Guy. 
And there's also a big area on my website, fantasylawguy.com, where you can submit questions that I'll answer on the show. Three of the four questions today were submitted via the website, fantasylawguy.com. Okay, let's get to the Thursday night football game, the Battle of Ohio. The Browns defeated the Bengals 35-30, kind of a shootout. A lot of it was in garbage time. And I thought I did a pretty good job in week one of my matchup previews. There were some misses, of course, there always will be. But overall, I thought my previews for the games were very accurate. But yesterday's preview, oh man. I mean, I was just wrong about so many things. I thought it was the worst. I guess if I've previewed 16 games to date this season, I thought that this this 17th game that I previewed right here was my worst preview, my most inaccurate predictions here. And there were things that I got right. I did correctly state that the point total would be over 43.5 yesterday. That was a big hit, obviously. This was a high-scoring game. Both offenses bounced back from week one inept performances, which I did predict, which correlated to resisting the urge of using the Bengals or Browns defenses, because a lot of people kind of had that urge because Baker and Joe Burrow were so erratic in week one. But I recommended not using the defenses in this game, so that was a good call there. Uh, Another good call was saying Odell Beckham was going to have a bounce-back week, and he did find the end zone with a 43-yard touchdown. And third, probably my only other good call for this game, was I predicted Nick Chubb was going to have a huge rebound game. He was kind of the focal point or my favorite start yesterday when I was giving the preview. And he did just have an amazing game. And although I was right about Nick Chubb having a monster week, I was wrong about Kareem Hunt. I did not think he'd be a great play and even recommended keeping him out of the flex. I thought this was going to be a Chubb game. And it turns out it was a both Chubb and Hunt game. And I also wrongly recommended starting A.J. Green in the flex and waiting on Tyler Boyd. And the opposite proved true there. This was a situation where I followed the week one usage because that's all we had and didn't consider the ebb and flow of the NFL. And I'll definitely try to do a better job of that in my week two previews, which are coming tomorrow. And I also said that I'm not starting either quarterback unless it's in Superflex. Yesterday, and Joe Burrow ended up having a great fantasy day. And Joe Mixon, yikes. I mean, any time that I rank a player higher than consensus in my draft guide, anytime they flop any week, like I feel the pain, like I feel the guilt, because those are the guys that I essentially advise readers and listeners to target in draft. And a lot of them looked like strong selections in week one, but things are not looking so good for Joe Mixon, man. Like I, I just don't know if he's going to score a touchdown like this entire season, it seems like. And, and we'll get to Mixon more in a second. But overall, I was pretty unhappy with my predictions and advice in this game. So if I caused you to take Kareem Hunt or Tyler Boyd out of your flex spots or prevented you from starting Joe Burrow as your quarterback, then that's on me. That's my bad, and I will try to do better. Again, although I called some things right, this was the first game that I really thought all season that I just kind of really whiffed on from a fantasy advice-giving perspective. So let's talk about Cincinnati first. We're on to Cincinnati. It's nothing about the past, nothing about the future. Right now we're preparing for Cincinnati. The Bengals played an amazing 92 snaps in this game. And that's the NFL's highest mark this season and will likely remain one of the highest marks 
if not the highest mark throughout the entire 2020 season. And when there's that many snaps being played, fantasy production will definitely come. And we saw it on the scoreboard. The final score is 35 to 30. But we also saw it in Joe Burrow's passing attempts. Joe Burrow attempted a whopping 61 passes in this Thursday night football game. And the Bengals, again, ran 92 plays. And Burrow was much better against a sorry Browns defense missing its number two and three cornerbacks than he was against a stingy Los Angeles Chargers defense in week one where he looked pretty inaccurate, pretty inept, and pretty flustered until kind of the last drive of that game. And the offensive line for the Bengals, big takeaway here. They were just such a disaster. And it's not a takeaway in the sense to where it wasn't predictable. Like I obviously mentioned several times and predicted that Bengals would have one of the worst offensive lines in the league. I follow offensive line very closely. And it was just not pretty here. And it changed kind of the Bengals' game plan. Like it forced Joe Burrow to dump off a ton of passes to tight ends and running backs in this one. And it is worth noting that two of Burrow's touchdowns came in garbage time. He ended up throwing for 316 yards, three touchdowns, zero interceptions, which is great for a rookie quarterback making his first road start, especially on 61 attempts. But also had uh, seven Rushes, 19 yards, but he did have a fumble loss, kind of canceling out those rushing yards there. But it's worth noting that two of the touchdowns did come in garbage time, and the Bengals were trailing for the vast majority of this game. But Burrow showed a lot of poise under nonstop pressure, and he also showed resilience, like with the team trailing. Like they didn't just give up. Like he wanted to win the entire game very badly. You could just see it in his eyes. He's an extreme competitor. And Burrow actually took it upon himself. Like the Bengals ran a lot of empty backfield sets, like 15 or so snaps. I'm not sure the exact number, but just from the eye test, I guess. 15 or so snaps in this game, there was just no running back on the field. Like it was just going five wide for Joe Burrow. And it kind of just reminded me how good he was at LSU when he was able to do that. And all three of his touchdowns came out of the shotgun in empty sets with no running backs on the field. So pretty interesting stuff there. I wonder if the Bengals will convert more to that style. And A.J. Green had two drops, and Tyler Boyd actually dropped a touchdown in this game, so it could have been even a little better. But it was just hard not to it was hard to watch this and not think Joe Burrow is eventually going to be a great NFL quarterback. That is, once he gets some resemblance of pass protection. The wide receiver that Joe Burrow targeted most, A.J. Green, who this was a stinker from A.J. Green. 13 targets, 3 catches, 29 yards. A total he, I mean, total flop. I mean, he just really stunk up the joint tonight. And he got the wind knocked out of him on the first target. I don't know if that had something to do with it. And he just kept coming up short on near catches. Like, it looked like he had lost a step. You know, a lot of these catches weren't perfect throws from Burrow. But they were, some were catchable. And the old A.J. Green probably would have made two or three of these catches, but I would say two of them cl- would classify as drops, including one in the end zone. But overall, my impression of A.J. Green was that he just looked old in this game. Like he had lost a step or two. The injuries may be piling up. His age may be a factor there. And perhaps his conditioning is not up to par with him missing nearly all of training camp. There's a number of different reasons for this. Maybe he just doesn't have a lot of chemistry with Joe Burrow because he missed all the training camp because of the shortened offseason. But A.J. Green, just definite sour taste in your mouth if you drafted A.J. Green. Things were looking up after week one. 
just because of the usage. And that's why I was banking on him to being a good option in week two in a better matchup. But man, I mean, his game was just rough. And it looked like it was going to be rough for Tyler Boyd as well, who kind of had a slow start. He had like 33 yards like midway through the third quarter, I think. But he ended up with eight targets, seven catches, 72 yards, and a score, which is a good you know, PPR day. It's like 20 points in PPR leagues. And I just thought Boyd was just okay in this game. I thought the eight targets, while it looks good on the paper, it was pretty underwhelming considering that Burrow attempted 61 passes and because A.J. Green was so struggling mightily in this game. So I just wasn't in love with the Boyd usage. Boyd was pretty efficient, catching seven of eight targets. However, the one target he didn't catch was a dropped short touchdown in the second quarter. But maybe this is a sign that things will pick up. I still kind of view him as a flex option. I'm not ready to be starting him as my wide receiver two yet, even though I thought he had that potential when he was drafted in the sixth, seventh round, whenever you got him. So moving on to the Bengals' running game here, and this was just pretty disgusting. In week one, Joe Mixon, 19 carries, 69 scoreless yards. In week two, 16 carries, 46 scoreless rushing yards. So Mixon been very inefficient this season. And I actually thought Mixon looked good and was utilized a lot in the passing game, which was promising in the first half. But things got uglier in the second half. The Browns got the lead, leading to less usage for Joe Mixon. And the Bengals' offensive line just couldn't open up any holes in the second half. And Gio Bernard appeared to score on a five-yard touchdown from the shotgun in the hurry-up offense. But then he was ruled down at the one. And Mixon came in after that. And at that point, I'm thinking, okay, we might get the first Mixon touchdown of the season. But then the defense was ready for that as well. And they stuffed Mixon for a four-yard loss on the next play. And that was his only chance to really score in this game. And the fourth quarter was just filled with garbage time and Gio Bernard catches. Gio Bernard played more snaps than Mixon in the fourth quarter, even though Mixon was used in the passing game in the first half. It just doesn't make any sense why they would utilize Mixon in the passing game. He's much better in the passing game than Gio Bernard. I just don't get it. They just paid him as well uh, to a huge contract. It doesn't make any sense. Gio Bernard, seven targets, five catches in this game, and Mixon just barely played in the fourth quarter. And another concern, I would argue, is that all of Joe Burrow's touchdowns came in empty sets. Like I described earlier, it just doesn't look like Mixon's a part of this hurry-up or two-minute offense when the Bengals are trailing, and they could be trailing often. I mean, the game script could be negative for the Bengals often. They're still a very bad team. There's a reason they got the number one overall pick in the draft, and it's also just a reminder that running backs behind bad offensive lines are just really tough bets. I wish that I would have graded Mixon with a second-round grade in my draft guide rather than a uh, my, the last pick in the first round for me. But nevertheless, Mixon has landed on a bunch of my teams, and he's probably on a bunch of yours too. So it is disheartening. I am pretty concerned. I don't know when he's going to score a touchdown this year. It seems pretty unlikely that he's going to get into the end zone unless it's a long run. And Mixon played 46 snaps in this game, and Gio Bernard played 42 snaps. And this was a positive matchup for Mixon against the Browns, one of the easier opponents he'll play all season. And it was positive in the sense to where the Bengals ran 92 plays in this game, 92 snaps. So you would think that the numbers would be higher for Joe 
Mixon. So my concern level is is pretty moderate here, not just mild. And I get that Joe Mixon has always kind of been a slow starter, and he plays his best football in December and November. But it's still really disappointing if you were hoping that he would carry on his top 10 RB pace in the final eight games of last year where they were using him as the bell cow, including more in the passing game. It's, it's just unfortunate if you expected, like me, to carry over to the 2020 season. Mixon should be viewed as more of a mid to low end RB2 now. You're still starting him rather than an RB1 where he was drafted. So before I move on to a running back that actually did thrive, I do want to mention a couple of notes for the Bengals, some deeper league notes here. The Bengals lost tight end CJ Azuma for the season to a torn Achilles. And that was early-ish in the fourth quarter when he went down. And after that, tight end Drew Sample, the Bengals' second-round draft pick last year, was thrown at six times in the final frame. And it was mostly dump-off passes and garbage time, but he finished with seven catches, 45 yards in this game. So a nice little PPR game for Drew Sample. And again, most of that was after Azuma went down. Azuma will be out for the season. And Sample was widely considered to be a huge reach when the when the Bengals took him in round two in last year's draft. He was projected to be like a mid-round pick, like even fourth-round pick. And he, he just did nothing as a rookie. But he now will have a decent-sized role in this offense. And this offense is predicated on short passes because the offensive line is so atrocious. He'll be a possible backup tight end or a streaming tight end on the waiver wire this week. Another deep league note, John Ross, who led the lead, who led the Bengals in snaps in week one, who I said is kind of a sleeper for this game. He appeared to trade places with T. Higgins, the Bengals' second round pick this year, and T. Higgins outsnapped John Ross big time in this game, and he caught 35 yards worth of passes. I believe it was three or four catches on six targets for T. Higgins. And John Ross only played 27 snaps, while T. Higgins actually played more snaps than A.J. Green in this game. So likely a changing of the guard there. It's not worth adding T. Higgins yet, unless you're in like a 14-team league. But keep an eye out for T. Higgins in the future. If he has another good game next week, he's probably worth an add in 12-teamers. Okay, let's move on to the Cleveland Browns, who were not the Cleveland Frowns last night like they were in week one. Baker Mayfield, 219 yards, two touchdowns, one interception. He was very efficient, and he was much better, much more confident and poised against a weaker defense that was also missing Geno Atkins, their best defensive player. And Mayfield was crisp on the two opening drives. He had a nice 43-yard touchdown strike to Odell Beckham early, and it's arguable that he lost a potential 36-yard score to Beckham later in the game on obvious defensive pass interference, but it's unclear, in my opinion, if Beckham would have been able to make the catch. It was a little bit, tad bit overthrown, I thought, but it is possible indeed that there was meat left on the bone there because of the penalty. His interception was a very, very poor Baker Mayfield-like decision, but overall he looked competent like a real NFL quarterback, and the Bengals just kind of rode their running game and play action past the victory, so he wasn't asked to do much in this game. Odell Beckham led the team in targets with only six because, again, they just weren't asked to do much in the passing game. He caught four passes, 74 yards, and a touchdown, and he pulled a double move on William Jackson, the cornerback, to beat him down the sideline for a long 
touchdown as he slid into the end zone. It was almost ruled down at the one, but it was ruled a touchdown upon review. And then Odell Beckham could have had that other touchdown that I described just now. And it's unclear whether he could have been, it's unclear where he could have made the catch if he wasn't held, but it was a clear jersey holding by William Jackson. And that could have been a 36-yard TD in addition. So good bounce-back game from Odell Beckham. The only reason it wasn't a bigger game is because the Browns simply didn't need him because they could just ride their running game all night long. Jarvis Landry, only three targets, same reasons there. Three catches, though, 46 yards. Quiet night for the passing game. Mayfield only completed 19 passes. And it's still a little unclear whether Landry is 100% healthy following his offseason hip surgery. But he was a reliable target in this one as usual, even though he was used sparingly. Nick... Chubb was a total fantasy star in this one. And the Browns just simply ran over the Bengals defense that was missing. Defensive tackle Geno Atkins, they were missing. Defensive tackle Mike Daniel. And the Browns were, although I should say the Browns were without run-blocking Mauler right tackle Jack Conklin as well. And this still happened. And Chubb just was such a punishing runner last night, like shedding just several tackle attempts. The Bengals just could not tackle this guy. One of his touchdowns was a goal line one-yard run that was set up by a Bengals turnover when Joe Burrow fumbled the ball. But Chubb just looked fantastic overall. He did seed a lot of opportunity to Kareem Hunt, in the, especially in the second half. But Chubb was the early primary, early down back, I should say. And he looked great in the new Kevin Stefanski run system. Unfortunately, so did Kareem Hunt, if you're a Nick Chubb drafter. And Hunt saw a lot of opportunity as well. 10 carries, 86 yards, very efficient. One score on the ground, one score in the air as well. Two catches, 15 yards. The Browns kind of used them as a one-two punch. And both were having a lot of success, as I mentioned. And they kind of rode Kareem Hunt in the fourth quarter, actually. They felt like Chubb already had two scores, already did enough. The game was pretty much in hand. And and Kareem Hunt was kind of their closer. And he scored on a six-yard touchdown in the first half, but he punched in a short touchdown to seal the game late. And it was just a really easy day overall for the Cleveland Browns. Lastly, I forgot to mention Austin Hooper. I said that I would hold him before this game and that I would, I would not be starting him, preferably, but... I was going to hold him for one more week now that David Njoku was placed on IR. Well, he blew, this was the week, and he blew his opportunity. He's a drop now, though if you followed my draft guide, you likely don't have Austin Hooper on your teams anyway because he was nowhere to be found on my draft board. Okay, that is the recap for the Thursday Night Football game. Tomorrow's show going to be the matchup preview for week two. It was extremely accurate and very helpful, I've been told, in week one, so please stay tuned for that matchup preview for all the games in week two coming tomorrow. All right, that'll conclude today's episode. If you enjoyed today's show, please do me a solid. Hit the subscribe button. Give a positive rating. Give a positive review. I really appreciate that kind of stuff. Make sure you ask all your fancy questions on the website, fantasylawguide.com. You can ask questions there. You can also ask questions at my social media, which is at fantasylawguy. I'll be posting my matchups column tomorrow. Thank you for listening, everyone. See ya.